0: We're studying uh, the church, and uh, today uh, is really part two to last week's focus, which is the family of God, the church as the family of God. So if you would, open to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day gathering, for a building in which we are able to meet, um, for a people um, anticipating and looking forward to um, lifting up the name above all names. Bring them safely, we pray, and may we um, do just that. Um, Worship corporately as your body of our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. sends the reading of God's word. Uh, last time in our focus on the family of God, the church is the family of God, um, we observed uh, the before and after details um, of redemption. The before and after details of regeneration. By nature, okay, we're reminded that by nature, um, we were as bad off spiritually as we possibly could be. By grace, we're better off than we ever could have imagined, the before and the after. And we learned that the transforming power of grace um, provides us a number of privileges, um, four of which we looked at last time. The first is that there is a people to whom we now belong. We are citizens, a citizen people. Secondly is that grace transforms us into members of a household. And that is the household of God Himself. And that household, thirdly, of which we are members, is is eternally secure. And that household has foundations that go deep, down through the apostles, the prophets, down to the cornerstone Himself, who is Jesus Christ. Eternal, second person of the Godhead who came to earth His incarnate Lord. And then fourthly, um, as God's people, as, as part of that eternally secure um, structure, it we learned is still growing. It, it grows in number, and it grows in worship. That's what we looked at last time. Now, that family, that household, with, with that deep, deep foundation is our focus this morning. So as to see our heritage. So as to see our legacy as God's family. Okay, that's what we're after this morning. We have a legacy. We have a heritage. But do we as God's people understand our heritage? That's the question. Most Christians I know, okay? Most believers I know today have no factual sense of their heritage. And as a result, they they view their Christian life as kind of an independent unit as regards God's saving purpose. Just little individual units, just me and Jesus, and so on. With little or no awareness of the heritage that precedes us. That's our focus. So as members of the church... It's very important that you understand not merely who you are, but who we are. You're not an afterthought. You're not a parenthesis. You're not um, chosen according to God's plan B, as though plan A failed. You have deep roots. And you belong to a people to whom God has made promises from the very beginning. That's your history. That's your legacy. A long line. Now, to our detriment, and I believe to our own embarrassment, Christians have often regarded the Bible as a compilation of two books. Right? They'll say, well, the Old Testament really is for the Jews. And the New Testament is really for Christians. True or not true? true. Thank you. Not true. The Old Testament is our book. The Old Testament is your book. The Old Testament records our story, setting forth the history of our family. Word. God's family, which makes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob our God, and therefore makes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob our forefathers. Amen? That's what the Bible is. The Bible is the record of redemptive history. It is the outworking of God's plan to save a people for himself from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's what the Bible is. With the church being the consummated expression of that privileged people. Okay, The church is the consummated expression of that privileged people, of that glorious plan. Privileged to to know who we are and privileged to know why we are who we are. Okay, And that's defined for us right there in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 explains who we are and why we are who we are. And we see there um, the the purpose for which we are here. So let's look at it. Let's look at verse 9. Notice... But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, the you there is not singular. as though he's talking to an individual. It's plural. He uses the plural you, you all. You all. Okay, so who then is the all? Go back to chapter 1, verse 1, his introduction. Now, this introduction is a mouthful. Notice, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, That, that, that is not, foreknowledge there is not to foresee, but to foreordain according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Okay, notice there the connection to the Trinity. So he's addressing those who are followers of Jesus Christ, Christians in the full New Testament sense, if you will. Okay? However, notice, in identifying the people to whom he's addressing, he hints at something here that he intends to develop in chapter 2. After referring to them as God's elect, he follows up with that phrase, exiles, of the dispersion, which is a technical term used at that time to refer to Orthodox Jews who lived where? Outside the land. So Peter picks up on that phrase and he applies it to first century Trinitarian Christians who are are the successors to and fulfillment of the people of Israel. Okay? So the but of verse 9 serves as this uh, statement of contrast. Okay, so in light of Old Testament prophecy, God is building a new temple. Okay, He's building a new temple in which sacrifices of worship will be offered to God. But there's a profound difference between the Old Testament temple and the New Testament temple. And the difference that distinguishes the final form of this temple as compared to the one that stood in Jerusalem is the materials that are being used in here? It's not stone and martyr, it is what people, people, his materials. Now, living stones, people. Notice verse back to chapter 2, verse 4 as you come to him, okay, he, Jesus, him. A living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone, right? So Jesus, he's the cornerstone. So I just say this friendly, in a friendly way. If you're waiting for some stone temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, you're going to be waiting a long time. <laughs> a long time. God's plan has been consummated in Christ, the cornerstone. We are the temple of the living God. Amen? We are the temple. And notice, this is not a novel idea. There were several Old Testament prophecies of a coming stone that would occupy the supreme place in God's new temple, this cornerstone. A stone that would elicit two contrasting responses, verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture. Okay, that's the Old Testament. That's what he's referring to. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever does not will be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So Peter's point quite simply is that God's stone divides people, right? Jesus separates people. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword to divide the father from his son. So on. That's what the gospel does. And notice, believers attach themselves to, to this stone where together they form this temple as living stones in worship. As a living structure in Christ, joined together, it is, again, a people structure. So here, Peter's referring to God's gathered people, people as his new temple. Everything in Israel, okay, again, everything in Israel, everything that was about Israel in the Old Covenant was to typify what has been brought to fulfillment in the church, Did we not see that in our study of Exodus? Yes. So in order to convince his readers of this, Peter takes four titles of distinguished honor to prove his case. Titles of honor that had originally been descriptions of Israel as a corporate body. And they're applied here to the church. So, verse 9, but you, okay, you, in contrast to those who refuse Jesus Christ, you all, God's elect, you're a chosen race. This is Old Testament language. Isaiah 43 20 refers to Israel as my chosen people. David, 1 Chronicles 16, David writes about the sons of Jacob as his chosen people. Ones. Psalm 105, we see the same thing. All throughout we read Abraham and his descendants are the chosen ones. And here, but by virtue of God's own promise, through this same Abraham, the boundaries of a chosen people, the chosen people of God, are expanded in the new covenant to include a multi-ethnic, multinational group of people, men and women, as this chosen race. (laughs) From, out of, every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the church then... It is the exponential fulfillment of Israel, not separate from Israel. What does Galatians tell us? Those who believe are children of Father Abraham, sons of Abraham. Okay, Now, last time we looked at Ephesians 2. Look at it. Verse 11. Remember, that you at one time, okay, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by those who've been circumcised by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What's Paul saying? Quite simply, all those covenants God made with Israel, guess what? They're now your covenants. They're yours. That's what he's saying. The the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, talking about the gift of the new covenant, right? Hebrews 8, talking about the gift of the new covenant, quoting right out of Jeremiah 31, says, this is the new covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and then he applies it to the church. Can I get an amen out here? Amen, amen. To the church. That is to say, God's covenant with Abraham God's covenant with Abraham is our covenant. God's new covenant promise to Israel is our covenant. Israel's Messiah is my Messiah. Our Messiah. You who once were outside of citizenry from Israel, our now, you are now citizens of God's true Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. God's true Israel. That that word chosen, over and over again in the Old Testament, chosen, chosen, chosen. Old Testament language. The church is God's fulfilled Israel. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is what we have in the book of Revelation, right? That number 144,000. If you notice there, John heard, John heard 12,000 taken from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Symbolic language, right? Symbolic language as regards the totality of God's elect. So he says 144,000 from the 12 tribes, 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes. He says, that's what I heard. But when I looked, what did I see? I saw a people... From every tribe and every tongue and every nation, God's elect people, his true Israel. And then the New Jerusalem, we read, is 12,000 stadia in length, in breadth, and in height. 12, 12, 12, remember that, 12, it's all twelve. as we move on. So as the church, in, in God's chosen people, because we're chosen, 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 it reminds us of our connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chosen one. So in context of 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's what Jesus is referred to. Notice, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown, chosen. Before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen. Precious. Verse 6, chapter 2. A cornerstone, again. Again chosen, and precious. So a chosen people, according to the sovereign election of God, and we're in the chief cornerstone, who's the chosen one? Why did God choose us? For the same reason He chose our forefathers. The answer, you know what it is? (laughs) Because. Because, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because <laughs> you were more in number than any other people that the, Lord set his love on, that the Lord set his love on you, and he chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. Because. I'm glad for that because. Our, our salvation is entirely of God, motivated by the love of God. That's what, scripture, that's what Scripture says. Our salvation is all of God, motivated by the love of God. So together, along with those who are identified in the Old Testament as God's true Israel, we share the same paternity. We have the same Father who set his love on us, because. Because. And as such, we are, notice, a a royal priesthood, back to uh, 1 Peter 2, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own, what? Possession. Look at Exodus 19, verse 6. This is Israel in the wilderness. You shall be to me a kingdom of, what? Priests and a holy nation. So Peter takes this concept. He uses the term royal priesthood for the church to understand itself as the fulfillment of God's design for Israel. As a priesthood, notice, belonging to the king. Get that? A royal priesthood. A kingly priesthood. It's the king's priesthood. A royal priesthood. So the very designation given to Israel in the wilderness is now ascribed to the church as a body. A priesthood. And priesthood implies nearness to God. Amen? Priesthood. It implies access to God. I mean, they're the ones that went into the tabernacle. So there was a special league of priests, but yet he refers to the whole nation as priests. And now, here, the church is priests. So the privilege of of new Israel brings with it far greater intimacy than old Israel ever could have imagined. Because of the king and priest who came. Prophet, priest, and king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophet of all prophets, priest of all priests. The great high priest. The last prophet. So this teaches us that the church is the consummated expression of the people of God throughout time. That's what we are, the consummated expression of a people from throughout time. And and friends, this is not some wild allegory, okay? This isn't some wild, crazy allegory of the scriptures. Remember, it's, it's Jesus who taught Peter and the other apostles how to rightly interpret scripture. This is what we see. Okay, now, boy, in the Gospels, the word church comes off the lips of Jesus how many times? Twice. Question, if the church is the object of his affection, and that's what this whole series is really about, the church is the object of Jesus' affection, therefore, we ought to share the object of his affection. We ought to have passion for the church as he has passion for the church. It's his. Okay, if, if she's the object of affection, why does he ever hardly mention her? by name? It's simple because he did not regard the church as something radically disassociated or different from what had become what, what had come before her. A nation of people. Amen? When he announced, I will build my church, he was not introducing something altogether new. He's consummating something. We're not distinct from Old Covenant Israel as the church, totally separate from Israel. Wrong. As a matter of fact, as I go through this, you can check with our Greek scholar back here. Shawty's here. The term church, as we know it, is often used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in reference to guess who? Israel. The word translated as church in the New Testament is the word "ecclesia," which is where we get the English word ecclesiastical. The word is formed from ek, meaning out of or away from, and kaleo, meaning to call. Right? The called out assembly. Who does the calling? God. God does the calling. So it's no mistake then that ekklesia is also translated as assembly, also translated as congregation. The the, the Hebrew word... Kehel is translated into English as assembly, congregation. We made reference to that back um, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. So, a number of definitions of kah- of kehel are identical to those of ecclesia. So, is it wrong to call? Is it wrong to call the old covenant people of God his church? No. People get all tripped up about that. So what what made Jesus' declaration so fresh was not the newness of it. It wasn't its newness, but that it, she, she, Is intimately connected to Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the last Adam who was standing on the earth in a human body at that moment. I'll build her. The church he promised to build must not be understood as the inauguration of something altogether different in God's program. Amen? This is your heritage. This is your legacy. She is in substantial continuity with the old covenant people of God. When people miss that, they misread Scripture. We've been trying to do this for 10 years, to teach people how to read the Bible. That's why we we preach as we do. We we, we preach expositionally, and we, we, we come to learn this, out of the gate, and that is that the Bible, first and foremost, is God's book that tells a story, okay? A grand narrative, one grand story made up of numerous little stories. Amen? Many narratives that, that, that serve as sub, subplots to one grand narrative. One grand story. And that is God saving a group of fallen, sinful individual people. And he makes them one. And that grand story does not begin in Bethlehem, friends. Okay? That grand story begins in the Garden of Eden. When God covered Adam and Eve's what? Shame. Good for you. God promised in Genesis 3, one day, okay, one day that the son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's the first promise. And the promise is given to Satan. First and foremost right there, a promise the one who introduced sin and condemnation into the human race. Your head's going to be crushed. He'll come from the woman. After some time, God calls a man, Abraham, out of idolatry. Is he Mr. Holy Man? No, God made him holy. God set him apart for his good purposes. Calls him out of idolatry, through whom he would make a great, what? Nation. And through him, the Lord said, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. And that story advances 400 years later when God has a large number of his people in an incubator called Egypt as slaves for 400 years. He calls them out of slavery. He calls them out of Egypt as led by Moses and then God enters covenant with them. I will be your God, and you will be my people. They enter the promised land. Eventually, David will become king, a man after God's own heart. He's made king of Jerusalem. And then that nation, due to her sin, God judges her. The nation's divided. They're taken captive, and yet still, he doesn't annihilate them. He didn't annihilate him at Sinai. Remember when he said, uh, you've sinned a great sin? And yet so many times we think all sin is sin to God. Not so. You've sinned a great sin. In Moses, I'm just going to start over with you. I'm going to wipe them out. And then he, he, he intercedes for them, foreshadowing our intercessor, the intercessor, Jesus Christ. So he spares them. God, in his grace, does not destroy his people. He chastens them. So they're taken into exile. And then God sends his prophets to to renew God's claim on Israel. These are my people. So he sends his prophets. Promising to bring them back from the what? Ezekiel's vision? The dead. I'll raise them up. And I'll return them to their land. Ultimately, again, making them a witness to the nations. To the nations. Now, in order to do so, God must come. He must come down. He must circumcise their hearts. He must renew the covenant, providing greater intimacy than they ever could have imagined of being their God and them being his people. And then, the the dawn of fulfillment of all that breaks into history as Jesus comes, not merely as promised Messiah, not merely as David's greater son, but as Emmanuel, God with us. When he came, he came to the nation of Israel calling her to the fulfillment of her destiny. What did Jesus come out preaching? The time is fulfilled. The time of expectation. I'm here. That's me. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is, that's been promised throughout the ages, it's at hand. I'm the king. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And he came to his own, in his own, received him, not. You'll see that vividly this morning. Not only his home nation, his hometown. But there were some within that nation who did respond by faith. God always had a remnant, i.e., true what? True? Israel true Israel. Israel within Israel. God's true Israel in whom her promised destiny would be fulfilled. Fulfilled. All of her promises, all the promises of Israel are are realized in whom? In who? Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen. That's it. He's it. He's the temple. Tear down this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And now all y'all who are in me, plural, you're the temple. You want to see the temple of God? Don't look at Jerusalem. Look next to you. (laughs) Look next to you. Look around. Look today. Now, in symbolic continuity with the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus appoints how many disciples? 12. 12 who would become the core of new Israel. 12 disciples, the true people of God, who were not, again, who were not replacing Old Covenant Israel, but is the continuation of God's True Israel. This isn't replacement theology. This is continuation theology. It's the expanded phase of her existence. We are the expanded phase of God's true Israel, her existence. The church, as I've said before, the, the church is to Israel what the butterfly is to the caterpillar. To quote Sam, was it Waldron who came up with that? the butterfly emerged at Pentecost, right? It sprang forth from its cocoon when the Spirit of God was poured out. And it was at that point, the people of God, the body of Christ, arrived, not as something altogether new, beloved, no way, but in her full and final prophesied form. That's what the church is. Not distinct from Israel. The church is not distinct from Israel, but in fulfillment of what God always promised Israel would become. That, that, that's what, this is what he's pointing out to us here. So you see all this familial language, identical to the language used in the Old Covenant. The seed has blossomed, beloved. Amen? The seed has blossomed. The the butterfly is free. So new Israel is comprised of the true children of Abraham. It's no longer identified by way of Jewish ethnicity, but again, by spiritual paternity. That's how she's identified. It's just one big people of God from throughout time, all the way back, from the garden all the way to the end. The new heaven, the new earth. One people of the one true God. Made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see it fulfilled. So redemptive history is is the record of the new growing out of the old. That that's how we're to read the Bible. Don't look at it as two distinct people. You're misreading the scripture. And I say it in love. The point, there's one body of believers. There's a single redemption for believers throughout history. His name is Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God. So we're priests. So, to wrap this up, priesthood not only implies nearness, it also implies worship. Worship. And here we read about a sacrifice of worship. And this sacrifice of worship, beloved, is not to propitiate God's anger. It's not to earn God's favor. The greatest act of worship has taken place in the gift of Jesus Christ, who propitiated God's wrath. He appeased, satisfied God's anger against sin and the sinner. Amen. Amen. So our worship is not for the sake of propitiation, it's in response to that propitiation. God sent Jesus. To, to propitiate for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Esther, you, and me. So, guess what? You know what that makes David, King David? Your brother. Queen Esther, your sister. Yeah. The only difference between them and us, one difference, it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of timing. Theirs was the age of promise pledged, ours is the age of promise realized. It's the only difference. All of the signs and all the symbols and all the furniture, the tabernacle itself, all that stuff, Christ fulfilled. It all pointed to him. You want to go back to that? If we're two different people, two distinct people, and to go, go build something that is symbolic of the one true temple? Are you kidding me? If you think that we're two distinct people with two distinct plans, then you'll think that. Why do I say that boldly? Because I've been saying it for 10 years. We have to get this. So sacrifices of worship are still what define us as God's people. That's what we're here to do today, right? Sacrifice of worship. An offering to the Lord who's been propitiated, satisfied through His Son. Head of his, what? Church, his called out ones. Abraham saved by looking forward to that head. We're saved looking back by faith to our head and worshiping him this morning. So here's our purpose, and we do this now in the age of fulfillment, First Peter two, verse four, "As you come to him, This is what we're doing this morning. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.